The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Yahoo Finance presents It's a Jungle Out There, the podcast where we take a wild approach to work and management. Lions roaring on the savannah. It's not a comforting sound, but they're interesting animals to consider when exploring the division of labour between genders. Male lions are designed to mate, sleep and fight. It's down to the female lions and the pride to hunt for food, raise the cubs and secure the territory. Are there parallels in offices and boardrooms out there? Are we stuck in a cycle where female workers graft away while their male colleagues rise to the top? I'm Liana Brinded, head of Yahoo Finance UK. Stay tuned to hear more. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast episode. Joining me now is Sundiatu Dixon-File, who is the global client lead in McKinsey Company's recently created inclusion and diversity service line. So this week we're talking about lions and how pride dynamics seem to reflect what happens in the workplace. For example, a pride usually consists of males at the top of the hierarchy, while the females do a bulk of the hunting and gathering, basically the work that keeps the pride alive. So, Sundiatu, in the world of work, where are we in the progression in gaining a more even playing field for women at work? Yeah, I would say we are making progress, slow progress, but progress nonetheless. So in a nutshell, I think there's a couple of things which have been achieved recently. So one is a real understanding of what the opportunity for more gender diversity at work is. Um, And that's come from multiple things. So on the one hand, there is the notion that it is about social justice. But increasingly, there is a recognition that it is a business opportunity in the business world. Um, Women, you know, control at globally only 20% of the world's assets, but two thirds of household spending is controlled by women. And so there's more and more recognition of uh, that as an opportunity. And firms such as ourselves have done analysis on what the opportunity for more women participating in the workplace would be. We did a piece of work called um, The Power of Parity in 2015, which showed that by 2025, having more women in um, the workplace could contribute up to 12 to 28 trillion in global GDP um, by 2025. So this is a a huge opportunity. So I think that the case is is becoming more and more understood at a global level and also at a company level. And we've done quite a lot of research to, to demonstrate that as well. That said, (laughs) (laughs) representation continues to be quite low, particularly that that classically depressing pipeline of um, dwindling numbers as you move up organizations, be they corporations or public sector organizations, with even organizations that have roughly 40% at entry level dropping to as low as sort of 12 to 14% when you reach the sort of top management level. And so um, we're not really seeing that sort of awareness awareness translating itself into big, big changes in, rec- in representation. We did some analysis which over a three-year period showed that um, if you look at executive teams, 
Um, gender representation on executive teams increased by only two percentage points over a three-year period, and this is in a global data set of a thousand companies. Um, and so there's, there's still quite a lot of work, uh, work to be done, I would say. So is it ever best to have more women than men on the workforce? Could that really be the answer? I mean, when we look at lions, Asian lions divide themselves into two prides, for example, where the females have one pride and the males have another. So is it actually wise to have more women than men in the workforce? That's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not sure there's a clear data-driven answer to that one. Um, again, just looking at research again. So um, we see that um, there are some industries where there are just naturally more women. So an example would be retail or food service or um, healthcare, um, and then industries where there's obviously far lower levels. Um, and there is one argument which is around um, who are your customers, and if you ask basically serving primarily women, it could make sense that um, your organization has a higher level of um, women in terms of just basically building customer insight and being, being able to, 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 to build strong relationships. So um, it could be there's an industry lens to it. That's quite possible. That said, um, one of the companies we looked at when we were doing our research actually measured whether there was um, a, a maximum level of women <laughs> at which you would have um, the benefits Breaking of diversity. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they came up with 40 to 60 percent. So they are, were actually able to show that teams that had 40 to 60 percent women in their leadership were the ones performed better. And so there's an implication that below 40, you have an opportunity to add, but above 60, you start having the reverse diversity problem in some ways. Um, and so I think that was a, an interesting data point. So um, I think it boils down to, you know, why would you want to have diversity? Um, and I think it, it's really important for any organization to really think through the reasons why they're seeking diversity. Is it about trying to better understand and serve their customers? In which case, they're diverse, they're, they're, the workforce would need to reflect their customer base. Mm. Um, is it about innovation? In which case, they might need to seek specific types of forms of diversity. So I think it really boils down to thinking through, well, what forms of diversity would help us as a business? Um, and therefore, how can we make our workforce reflect that? On that point, we have got to a really great stage where there seems to be more more women in work and some of these overall workforces there seems to be getting some kind of parity but why i know there are some overarching themes but really when we unpack it and maybe through some of the research that you guys have done um why does it get to that point where when it comes to making that step up not just you know at the executive or ceo level but even in the senior management level in that kind of middle tier why is it that it seems so difficult still to get more uh, more balance between the genders? Yeah, I mean, um, the leaky pipeline, there are multiple reasons for this. It's a fairly complex uh, uh, situation, but I think um, there's a couple of, of, of big things. So one is just the buy-in to this, this business case. So I mentioned that um, there's more and more acceptance, but that acceptance often is very strong at the top of an organization. And when you move to the middle management level, where a lot of these decisions around, you know, who to hire and who to promote get made, um, it sort of falls down the priority list because it isn't really tied to the core business. So mm. one of the big obstacles, I would say, is that, which is middle management aren't really, really bought in. It feels like a kind of add-on, which is imposed by HR. Um, and then I think there's quite a bit around um, the talent management systems and processes. So by that, I mean 
recruitment, um, advancement and promotion, there still is not a level playing field in a lot of these. And so one classic example would be that we did some work in the US where we looked at um, 220 companies and did an annual survey called Women in the Workplace, um, which showed that women were 18% less likely to be promoted than men. They had less exposure to senior management. Um, and I think that means that it is actually more difficult for women to, to get promoted. There isn't full transparency around the promotion criteria. There isn't equal access to sponsorship, which I know we'll talk about later. Um, and these are the examples of barriers which make it quite difficult for women to get to the top. So that's a really interesting point. When it comes to how it seems less likely that women are going to get there, I mean, to me, it isn't just about, oh, there should be more transparency in terms of just what the process is, but also actually really unpacking and re-looking at maybe how women are possibly under a different type of scrutiny when it comes to stepping up than they are compared to men. So there is the classic case of the difference between a woman being um, bossy compared to men being assertive. Do you feel that we've made any kind of headway in terms of companies and managers genuinely recognising that that kind of attitude needs to change? I would say that um, there's still a long way to go on that front. Um, a lot of these attitudes are really entrenched. They have to do with societal norms. They have to do with mindsets, which um, individuals have grown up with. And they lead to a lot of um, biases in terms of um, decision making. So um, the famous cognitive biases such as, you know, you want to only hire and promote people who look like you. And as soon as they don't, you start being, you know, risk averse. And there's a number of these biases that are in play and they are very, very well entrenched and difficult to, to shift. Um, and I think they do operate in, you know, against against women where there's a sort of, you know, no win. On the one hand, if you don't sort of promote yourself and um, in some ways sell your, your achievements, you're overlooked. And if you do, you are considered to be aggressive and still overlooked. And so um, I think the, the reality is that there's often still this lose-lose situation for women. So what would you say are ways in which, when it comes to that aspect of it, the day-to-day, -day, they're in the office, whether it's someone putting their hand up or someone championing what they have done on a project or maybe a small win that they had uh, somewhere else, what, what would you say is a way that an individual as well as maybe a unit can do in order to promote that kind of recognition? Would it be workshops? Would it be actually um, more transparency around encouraging that kind of behaviour? I mean, I think there needs to be firstly an understanding of what the problem is, and that needs to be much more widespread. A lot of people who work in the field would be aware that these biases are operating, but most people in their day jobs wouldn't. So I think there really does need to be an awareness, and that has to be pushed by the organization and supported and promoted. And so that whole cascade coming from the chief executive sort of demonstrating and role modeling the kinds of behaviors she or he would want to see. Um, and then also just making sure that there is an opportunity to build capability and skills around um, in, in within senior management to role model and demonstrate what we call inclusive leadership. So I think there needs to be some sort of corporate level effort. And then indeed, there are absolutely individual efforts. The individual efforts on the part of 
of the majority, so that would be the typical sort of like male manager, um, who would need to um, make sure that, first of all, people understand this dynamic in their teams and so literally huddle the teams together and say, you know, this is what we know works well in a team when everyone feels valued and appreciated um, and when people are not talking over each other and kind of pinching each other's ideas, etc. And so literally set some team norms and then actually watch implementation of these norms. Just give people feedback when they're not um, adhering to the norms. If you know a woman has an idea and mutters it quietly, um, and then a man picks up on the idea and, and gets sort of rewarded and and, and congratulated, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then you know, these managers picking up on that and saying, okay, do you remember our team norms? We said this wasn't acceptable. Um, so I think there's a lot that managers can do on that front. And I, th I think there's a lot that, um, um, can be done to encourage diverse talent as well and to support them, um, to support them to to speak up, um, to support them to flag these issues and create the, the kind of open and inclusive atmosphere which encourages people to speak up and address issues when they come up and help the teams and the organizations move forward on a more inclusive path. Well, we're just going to take a quick break and after that we're going to hear more about that pipeline. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Picking up on the diversity inclusion pipeline, I think it's very important that when we talk about getting the, this greater diversity and balance within work, it's not just about a balance between men and women, but also recognising the intersectionality in terms of the challenge that women face when it's women of colour. So when it comes to all the issues that we're talking about, how does that become even more, I suppose, doubled down in terms of the challenges for women within that group? 
Yeah, so I mean, we're quite passionate about the topic of intersectionality because we really just appreciate the fact that um, diversity is in multiple forms. There's forms that are inherent, which include your gender, um, but also acquired diversity, which include, for example, your socioeconomic background. And um, it becomes really important to go beyond just the sort of gender to include also ethnic diversity and other forms of diversity as well, including neurodiversity, by the way. Um, so recognizing that, there's been more and more work to try and capture some data and do some analysis on these other forms of diversity. And we've done some of that, that work, um, which shows that, um, first of all, the business case for more ethnic diversity is, is a strong. <laughs> um, and then when you look at intersectionality and you look at representation, you do see that there really is a, a double hit. Like if you follow your example of, of, of women of color, we did work in the US on women in the workplace, which showed that... Um, there's a huge, huge drop, and the drop is even starker for women of color than it is for women, right? So there's a drop for women, even starker drop um, for women of color. Um, in the end, by the time you get to the C-suite, you have only 3% um, who are black women versus um, 18% in the US um, who are uh, white women. And so essentially, um, there's this double hit, and um, there's, a, there's a statistic which, which is quite also troubling in some ways, which is we looked not only at the representation and executive teams, we also looked at what kinds of roles women had on um, executive teams, splitting them between line roles, which are essentially the roles which lead to CEO, which are the kind of more related to the business line. 95% um, of chief executives are promoted from line roles, which include, for example, chief finance officer, versus staff roles, which are more the support roles. And we found that women were twice as likely to be in staff versus line roles. But when you take black women, they are four times as likely to be in staff versus line roles. And so it's no surprise in some ways that there are almost no black women's years if you look at the Fortune um, 500. Um, and so I think there definitely is a double hit and that is, is being seen in the data as well. So when it comes to um, this area, one of the things that has been floated from whether it's on the governmental level to self-impose quotas in terms of trying to make sure that there is more of a balance, over the last few years, I've been looking at so many studies and I was recently talking um, on a panel with a few other people that have changed their minds over the last few years around quotas. I'm still a bit on the fence because initially um, I, I thought, you know, we don't need quotas, that's a box ticking exercise, it should be, it should be more organic. However, when it hasn't been mandated to have those quotas, nothing has changed that quickly. There may have been a slight rise, like, woohoo, we've now got one woman on a board, that's it. But it doesn't seem to be making tangible change. So now my mind is a bit more changing when it comes to having more numbers behind that equality. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, we like numbers, uh, McKinsey. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, moving on from that, um, we've done a lot of research on different companies mm. and particularly focusing on the companies that have managed to really move the needle on inclusion and diversity. And what we see is that they like numbers too and they set themselves targets. They, they don't call them quotas. They set themselves targets. And so what we found from speaking to them is these targets have multiple purposes. So one is it creates a very clear goal. Um, secondly, it helps different parts of the organization understand 
how far they need to go to reach that goal and therefore just how much effort they need to put into it over a particular time frame. Um, and then the third thing it does is that it allows these organizations to in some way flex their target um, so that it isn't a one-size-fits-all. So if they, for example, have decided that it's going to be their target is 40% women or 50% women across the whole organization by a certain date, they're able to say, well, different parts of the business are at different starting points and they're in a talent pool that is more challenged. And so it just creates a lot more buy-in when the target is customized and tailored, um, adjusted in some ways to the situation. Um, and I think the key thing about targets is that they really need to be thoughtfully applied. Um, and not enforced like one would um, a quota, particularly in, in a business environment or for business roles. Um, and so that really means that there's a need for a supportive approach where the central kind of diversity talent management organization works with the business units to think about ways in which they can, first of all, to think about what is the appropriate target for them, but also to think about ways in which they can work towards them and literally problem solve together how they can work towards meeting that target and how they can avoid any negative connotations and potential backlash. Um, and as we know, there's a clear risk of that if um, targets are not uh, wisely managed, let's say. Absolutely. And I think one of um, those areas that I think, um, going back to more of maybe the holistic level, is mentoring and sponsorship. So especially with women in the workforce, it seems to be very much encouraged um, to get a mentor as well as a sponsor. So what would be really great is what would your definition be of the two and what's the difference between them? Yeah, so it's really important to understand the difference between both. And um, the way we see it, mentoring is about providing advice, coaching and support, which is, um, helping with kind of navigation and relationships and just sort of giving um, leadership and development advice. And that's quite different from sponsorship, which is about creating concrete opportunities for advancement. And so generally a sponsor is somebody who would be in your line, so in your um, hierarchy, and somebody who would, be ha who would have the opportunity to give you a promotion, a team, a budget, um, an opportunity to go and manage a business, all of which will then contribute to you being promoted. And it's extremely important to understand that difference and also to be able to measure the extent to which sponsorship is happening in organizations and whether diverse talent is receiving as much sponsorship as majority talent. And what you find out when you actually measure it is that you don't have that kind of level playing field at all. Um, sponsorship is not evenly distributed um, mm. and women definitely are less sponsored than do men and same with diverse talent. Um, and I think that is one of the big areas of opportunity for organizations. Well, when it comes to the sponsorship side, genuinely would love to hear how would you go about it? I mean, I hear from so many forums that, you know, find a sponsor, especially as a woman, um, because that's a very tangible area where you can get those goals, you can get that opportunity, that finish line of where you want to get to. But how does someone from scratch go and find that within the company? That sounds like a very much like a cold calling, like, hey, can, can you give me a path for a promotion? But you tell me how I'm going to do it. It feels, where do you start? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one. I think you need both things to happen. On the one hand, individuals to really go out and seek sponsors and be clear that, you know, what they're looking for is a sponsor. But I think the organization also, again, has a role to play there. And so if I start with the organization, so we see organizations that, first of all, diagnose the extent to which
research sponsorship is happening. They will do sponsorship surveys in which they ask employees to identify who they think are their sponsors and then who they are themselves sponsoring. And then you can build like almost a social network map of who's getting sponsorship and who's sponsorship, sponsoring who. And so with that data, then you start saying, okay, well, let's put in place a sponsorship program. And so that will include making sure people understand what sponsorship is, um, encouraging senior people to sponsor more junior people, helping them pick sponsees, um, and so literally high, high potential talent, ensuring that there's a good balance in the distribution of people who are sponsored and so forth. So there's a whole endeavor, which I think needs to come from the organization. Um, and then I think indeed there's a real opportunity to, for people as well to really look up their line and think, well, how am I going to develop a sponsoring relationship um, with this person who's my boss or who, who could be um, in a, an area that I would like to move into? That's very much on the individual level. And that that sounds very empowering that in a way that you can at least try and carve out these opportunities for yourself. But on the wider level, so um, for, you know, I suppose a the next step of this is, let's say um, this is all coming into fruition for individuals. We've got this pipeline of talent coming through. But one of the key areas that I'd love to explore is how do you create a genuine environment that will retain this talent that everyone has painstakingly tried to bring in? Yeah, that's an absolutely fair, fair issue. And I think that boils down to um, inclusion and retention. So um, if I start with the, the retention, so you want to make sure that your organization, once you have, you know, cultivated and, and, and onboarded um, your diverse talent is able to keep them. And so if you start with women um, and you ask, well, what are the things which, which make women you know, not stay? Um, we've talked about some of them, which is a perception that you know, their opportunities are, are not um, either as attractive or as, as feasible within reach um, as, uh, as they would like them to be. But there's a lot around sort of flexible working um, and agile working, just ensuring that um, work um, is manageable for women um, and that they're able to handle, if they're in a double, double burden situation, that they're able to handle that. Um, for example, in our firm, um, we're able to work from different locations. We don't have to be present in the office, but I do know that there's a number of companies mm -hmm. that are still really attached to this kind of presentism. Um, flexibility in terms of careers as well. So literally looking at a year over a 12-month period, allowing people to take more time off if they need to. And also over a sort of five-year period, allowing breaks. And these breaks could be parental breaks for, for maternity leave, but also they could be career breaks for other reasons. And so I think there needs to be a real rethink of careers and a real rethink of flexible and agile working as a way to retain, retain diverse talent, particularly for women. Um, and I think there's also quite a lot around um, providing women and other diverse talent with the support, with the sort of leadership development support, which is around coaching and training and building their own capabilities to be leaders and also building their confidence to be leaders, their confidence that they can lead in their own ways. They don't mm -hmm. have to mimic the majority. So if in the case of women, they don't have to act like men in order to become a chief executive. And often sometimes there's a need for that confidence to be built. And there's coaching classes, there's leadership development training, um, and, uh, and and that kind of mentoring that can, can be helpful as well. 
Great. Well, thank you very much. I think that was a very positive note to end on. So thank you very much. That was Sundiatu Dixon File from McKinsey. And before you listeners go, don't forget that you can find our show notes and helpful articles under the Work and Management channel on uk.finance.yahoo.com. And if you like this episode, which I'm sure you all did, please rate, subscribe and tell your friends about us. And while you're at it, download the Yahoo Finance app for unparalleled access to data and alerts on the go. Yahoo Finance presents It's a Jungle Out There, produced by Liana Brinded and Caitlin Mercer, recorded, edited, and mixed by Lolita Laguna, and music by Gregory Moore. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.